0: The moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. A quote from Peter Pan. The reality of the herd is nothing more than an ideological myth. A story concocted in accordance with the prevailing beliefs to explain how an already existing thing came into being. The children of Abraham tell a story of how their God created rainbows as a promise that he would never do it again after he had drowned the entire world then they laugh at Peter Pan. Mythology, as a word itself, should be stricken from the English language. There is no such thing as a myth, only alternative realities, every one of them just as feasible and just as real as the other. The one the observer experiences is dependent only on what the observer believes is real. If Peter Pan jumps from the roof of the Empire State Building in front of you, he will no doubt end in a bloody pancake on the pavement below. But in another world, you're soaring like a drunken pigeon over Fifth Avenue. The bloody pancake is part of your world, not his. The herd, the mob, the unwashed masses are farm animals, and are seldom, if ever, told the truth by their keepers. They believe, they graze, and they bleat. They live and die by what they are told. They are the proverbial 600 lost souls in the South Tower of the World Trade Center, who are only too willing to ignore the burning North Tower right in front of them in favor of promises made by an incorporeal authority who tells them on some faceless public address system that everything will be just fine if they just go back to work. For them, beasts of burden that they are, death cannot come soon enough, just like it did. They are slaves. They are helots. They are technology sudras conditioned to swoon at the mere mention of Albert Einstein's name, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, the godlike Jew that changed the course of human history in the early 20th century. It would be laughable if it did not contain in the germ of truth. There was a godlike Jewish scientist in the first half of the 20th century, from which proceeds everything 21st century man now sees before him, but his name was not Albert Einstein. And he was, in fact, besides being a Jew who delighted in telling Yiddish jokes to other Jews, a fanatically committed Nazi. John von Neumann published over 150 papers in his lifetime, and each one of them would alter the course of human history. But in the end, he only published what was necessary to move mainstream science into the 21st century. Most of what he did was top secret. Enrico Fermi may have built the bomb almost single-handedly, and Martin Bormann may have supplied the U-235 when he dealt the submarine U-234 to the Allies, but it was John von Neumann who made it all work. It was von Neumann who designed the implosion detonation mechanism for Fat Man, the plutonium bomb that leveled Nagasaki, the one the Germans so conveniently had the infrared fuses for on board U-234. It was von Neumann who selected Hiroshima and Nagasaki as the targets after being overruled on Kyoto, his first choice, by Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson. And it was von Neumann who, according to every, even mainstream academia, calculated the exact heights at which the bombs would be detonated. In 1950, von Neumann was, became consultant to the Weapons Systems Evaluation Group, WSEG, the WSEG advised America's Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of Defense on the weaponization of new technologies. After that, he was the shadow behind the government and the inspiration of Stanley Kubrick's iconic 1964 movie character, Dr. Strangelove. During the final stages of his illness, von Newman was wheelchair bound, and meetings that would set policies that are still in place today for national security, were often held at his home. His work was so classified that an armed contingent stood over him as he died of cancer at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in 1957. There would be no impromptu deathbed confessions in John von Neumann's biography. His mathematicist, Grundlagen der Quantum Mechanik, the 1932 book, That defines quantum mechanics. Until this very day, von Neumann attributes the indeterminate nature of quantum physics to input from the observer's consciousness that is outside of mathematical calculations. He said the entire universe could be described as a wave function, and wave function collapses due to the consciousness of the observer. Among physicists, this school of thought is called the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation, its wild abandonment of determinism has always had little appeal to academia that has built its temple on the foundation of rationalism. Hugh Everett Third, born in 1930, was von Neumann's successor at the WSEG. Everett, just like von Neumann, was a blue blood. Only Everett was a loyal son of the Anglo-American Empire, whose father was a lieutenant colonel in the general staff during World War II. After the war... Everett took a year off from school in 1949 to stay with his dad in occupied Germany. Together, they took hundreds of professional-grade photographs of the technical aspects of the Reconstruction, all rather strangely, almost devoid of people. After graduating in 1953 from the most exclusive Catholic schools in Washington, D.C., with a degree in chemical engineering, Everett was given a National Science Foundation Fellowship, enabling him to attend Princeton for graduate studies. There, he had first studied game theory, a branch of mathematics established by von Neumann in 1928. Game theory analysis, the strategies of the participants in competitive situations. By 1954, Everett was immersed in mathematical physics at Princeton under Eugene Wigner of the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation. By 1955, he had his master's degree and began work on his dissertation, Wave Mechanics Without Probability which he would finish in April of 1956. A month later, he went to work for the WSEG, where he would become become the director of the Department of Physical and Mathematical Sciences in 1957, the year von Neumann died. Just about everything Everett did after that was classified. Everett's dissertation turned theoretical physics on its head. Everett said, the wave function didn't collapse, denying the Copenhagen school its most cherished precept. Whatever it said was the same thing the inventor of the equations that describe a wave function. Erwin Schrodinger had told physicists four years earlier at the famous lecture when he warned them that what he was about to say would seem lunatic. Schrodinger went on to say that there really is no such thing as probabilities, and that when his equations seem to be describing several different histories, they are not alternatives. But all really happened, happened simultaneously. Back at the Empire State Building, you're looking at Peter Pancake. But in the alternate reality, just as real as your own, Peter Pan is swooping down Fifth Avenue laughing at you. Peter Pan cannot die and neither can you. This is called quantum immortality. Ever believe so strongly in it, that he actually ate, drank, and smoked himself to death at age 52, making a spectacle of it in front of his family and boasting to his colleagues how satisfied he was with his life's achievements. Later, in hopes that she would meet up with him in the right parallel universe, his daughter would commit suicide, asking her in her suicide note that her ashes be thrown out with the trash, as Everton insisted he should be. The foundational premise of Preston Nichols' infamous Montauk Project Trilogy was the artificial production, amplification, and introduction of an oscillated frequency to subjects, usually prepubescent boys, with the right Nordic blood type. When seated in a chair designed by von Neumann to achieve harmonic synthesis between the subject and the introduced frequency, the subject can project alternate realities, even beings that can interact with this reality. Wormholes can be opened up and time manipulated for the deployment of an army of mind-controlled super soldiers created by secret Nazi technology. The raison d'etre of the project is given as the Babylon working, the ultimate consummation of the magic of Aleister Crowley. The whole thing is implemented under the direction of von Neumann and directed after the war from the Brookhaven Lab in Long Island. Most of the experimentation took place in deep underground military bases, tumbs beneath Camp Hero, a now defunct radar station at Montauk Point, Long Island. The first book, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, was published in 1992. Its cover features the picture of a statue of a great rearing steed with a clock on its stomach. In the book, Claiming to be a participant in the experiments himself as a technician, Nichols tells his reader, without bothering to give any good reasons why he's telling them, the future can be accessed only so far as the time time traveler is confronted by the statue of a great rearing steed in a landscape devoid of people. In 1993, New Mexican artist Luis Jimenez was commissioned to build a 32-foot-high statue for the, for the then-under-construction Denver International Airport. The statue would take 15 years to complete and looks almost exactly like the rearing steed depicted on the cover of Preston Nichols' book. The differences being, the Jimenez statue is painted blue, minus the clock, and rearing full to the apex of its terrible height. The airport opened in 1995, but the statue would not be finished in 2008. Jimenez was killed in 2006 when a section fell from its hoist and severed an artery in his leg. He bled out in his hand on New Mexico studio, 13 years after being commissioned. His son's finished the work, and it's now on display at the airport, leaving a lasting impression of dread in many of the 28 million people who pass through each year. Because of its glowing red eyes, some have taken to calling it the devil horse or Satan's steed. At close to $5 billion, Denver International Airport ended up costing almost twice what it was budgeted for, was 16 months over deadline and seemingly built in the middle of nowhere. Rumors have surfaced, substantiated by facts like these, that the airport itself is just the external face for a DUMB that is the hub of a Luciferian conspiracy to eliminate 90% of the world's useless cities and bring to fruition the New World Order of of Masonic Dreams. That dream, in a seemingly taunting gesture, was carved in the granite of the Georgia Guidestones when the 80s began. It was Alistair Crowley himself who had given the marching orders for instituting the new reality, a reality without reality, without limitations, without rules, an indeterminate reality where the elect would take strange drugs and make love to great purple beasts of woman. In the Book of the Law, written all the way back in 1904, Crowley called the Magi to war against what he called the old gray world. I am the warrior lord of the 40s. The 80s cower before me and are abased. I will bring to you victory and joy. I will be your arms in battle, and ye shall delight to slay. Success is your proof. Courage is your armor. Go on, go on in my strength, and ye shall turn not back for any Carl Prebrim, the founder of the holonomic brain theory and the leading light of the holographic paradigm, repeatedly points out that by 1906, German scientists had begun to explore the possibility that the brain works like a frequency receiver. But even before that, experiments in wireless communication and electrical discharge in Germany by scientists like Frederick Passen, his successor Max Wien, and elsewhere by Nikolai Telser, Guglielmo, Marconi, and others had proved beyond a shadow of of a doubt that this world the human race lives in is nothing more than a frequency signal and the channel can be changed. Those experiments have never been made public. In fact, Passion and Ween, two of the greatest experimental scientists that ever lived, have been virtually written out of history. Another, Telsa, made to look like a quack, and Marconi, Marconi a spaghetti salesman. History, because it is written by academics beholding to their sponsors, has been since the days of Herodotus, never ever tells the truth. History tells those it seduces what its sponsors want them to hear. That's why in the days before Christianity, when Western man was still capable of critical thinking, Herodotus was called the father of lies. Now he's called the father of history. Walter Geerlach was Hitler's plenipotentiary for nuclear physics in the Reich Research Council. After the war, he was fingered as the lead scientist in the enigmatic Nazi bell experiments by the soon-to-be-hung Jacob Sorenberg. He was SS Gruppenfuhrer General Lieutenant de Paul for Poland and Belarus, where the experiments took place. Geerlach had served... His apprenticeship under Passion, then gone to serve in World War I under Wien in wireless communication for the German army. These men were all doing pioneering work with light waves below the visible spectrum. They were studying the frequencies of electromagnetic radiation emitted during transition from the higher state of energy to a lower. The same as occurs during a gravitational redshift where time is altered. Wien was even experimenting with synchronizing two pendulums, just like Fourier analysis is able to do on paper. Even before the Germans got to work on their time machine, which is exactly what the Nazi bell was, by the early 20s they had already built Jensen Flugen machine, the, or afterlife flying machine, under the direction of Winifred Arnold Schumann. Schumann, another of the great German experimental scientists written out of history, was Germany's answer to Nikola Telsa, and perhaps the foremost expert in the world on high-voltage technology at the time. He was using instructions provided by beautiful and mysterious female magi, who told the German scientists from the Thule Society working with them that they were channeling with the technical schematics for, with, for the ship with, from disembodied entities. After the war, Schumann, under Operation Paperclip, would be sequestered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for two years, along with 220 tons of classified German papers on aviation. None of what was learned has ever been made public. In the 50s, Schumann would be credited with discovering the Schumann Resonance, a set of spectrum peaks in the extremely low-frequency portion of the world's electromagnetic field, usually around 7.83 hertz, but ranging between 3 and 60 hertz contingent on worldwide lightning activity which generates it. The Schumann Resonance is the pulse of the living Earth. Starting in early 1880s when Heinrich Hertz, for whom the Hertz unit of measurement is named, proved in the lab the existence of electromagnetic waves, there was a relentless and unbroken line of experimentation by the Germans in a Herculean effort to produce a higher and higher frequencies. The early experimentation of Wien led to the 1920s invention of of the Balkinson Oscillator by Heinrich Heinrich Balkinson and Carl Kurtz. It was the first oscillator to produce modulated electromagnetic waves in the ultra-high frequency spectrum, in other words, radio. But more importantly, the Germans could now change the channel with their afterlife or other world flying machines and explore the myriads of invisible worlds, coterminous with the one the rest of the human race is trapped in. In 1935, Oscar Heil, one of the few great German scientists who hasn't been written out of history, together with his brilliant Russian wife, Agnessa Asenjawa, would crown the German effort with a paper that presented the velocity-modulated HAL tube to the world. The HAL tube was able to beam electrons in bunches, allowing for the generation of radio waves at far higher spectrums than were possible with vacuum tubes used until then. The HAL tube was the first practical microwave generator. It was crucial in the development of radar technology and is still used today. HAL was also issued several patents for transistor-like devices before the war. In 1947, he was invited to America. By the end of 1947, Bell Laboratories announced the invention of the point contact transistor. At the close of World War II, America needed 50 kilos of U-235 for the critical mass necessary to detonate its atomic bomb. In a memo dated December 28, 1944, the chief meteorologist for Los Alamos, Eric G., wrote, a study of the shipment of bomb-grade uranium for the past three months shows the following. At the present rate, we will have 10 kilos about February 7th, and 15 kilos about May 1st. At best, America's atomic bomb would have little more than half the uranium required to achieve critical mass by August 6th of 45, the day they dropped it on Hiroshima. The same explosion could be produced using only a third that much plutonium, but the only man who could figure out how to de- detonate the plutonium, von Neumann, was working with different with a different science than the disciples of Einstein, who had built America's bombs. He required something only the Germans could produce. In the deal that would convince the world that the Allies had won a war where they had achieved the draw at best. The Anglo-American Empire's consolation Prize was brought over in U-234 as part of an agreement that had had been made with Martin Bormann, Hitler's right-hand man. Among the treasures on board U-234 were the infrared fuses that were necessary to use the specially made explosive lenses designed by von Neumann to compress and detonate the plutonium core of the bomb later dropped at Nagasaki. Along for the boat ride was Dr. Heinz Schlick, perhaps the foremost expert alive in the electromagnetic science. Schlick had studied under Barkinson in Germany. His dissertation was on the entrainment of oscillators in subharmonics. He would instruct the bumbling Americans on how to use the infrared users and much, much more after the war, working under Operation Paperclip at the Office of Naval Research in Sands Point Long Island. His work there consisted of what is now known as stealth technology. Considering Bluebirds and Blue Books have Blue, Project Blue Beam, and now even Blue Planet Project, it really should just be called Blue Technology. Sands Point, one of the world's wealthiest residential enclaves, is about an hour and a half drive from Montauk. It's not even half that to the working class neighborhood of East Islip where Grumman and Fairchild the military contractors who produced to have blue prototype of the stealth planes. One shared a building. During the 80s, it was located right across Sunrise Highway from Hector State Park. The area around the building is where much of Nichols' narrative really took place. If the German scientist had a team captain, it was Manfred von Arden, a blue blood of the highest pedigree and intellect imaginable. He filed his first patent in 1923 at the age of 15. He was for an electric was for an electronic tube for applications in wireless tele- telegraphy with three systems in a single tube. By nineteen twenty-eight, von Arden, who was the real life Bruce Wayne, had financed and built his own subterranean lab beneath Berlin Licherfield. Von Arden's back cave came replete with a two million volt electrostatic generator and a cyclotron. At the time, there was only one other cyclotron throughout all of Europe. That was of the Curies, who were being financed by the entire Universal Church of Albert Einstein pseudoscience. Von Arden's lab, properly dubbed Forshugen Laboratorium, or electro Physique, specialized in nuclear physics and high-frequency technology. It was the place to be for most of the light elite scientists of Germany and what was before World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. After National Socialism assumed power, it was a hangout for the highest echelon of the movement. Men like Hitler, Bormann, and the bagman for Germany's incredible wealth by War's End, Karl Osnar Sorge. He he was the president of the Central Office of the Reich Post, Germany's Central Postal Service. Sorge was perhaps Hitler's oldest and closest confidant after Fritz Todd the Minister of Armaments, who controlled the TOT organization, Germany's national construction company. TOT died in a plane crash following an emergency private meeting with Hitler in the beginning of '42. Osorge was not only in control of the mail distribution and national social budget, but slated to control future distribution of all television sets in the Third Reich. He had an abiding interest in propagating the party through wireless technology. After the war, he was charged but the charges were suddenly dropped with no explanation ever given. Sorge, the second most important man in Germany after Hitler, just disappeared, fading into the post-war landscape like a ghost. By the time the Germans hosted the 1936 Summer Olympics, Von Bernhard had already invented the television so the rest of Europe, still reeling from the Great Depression, could bear witness to Germany's triumphant resurrection under National Socialism from the gutters. Von Arden is credited with inventing the scanning electron microscope in 1937, and his work was pivotal in Ernst Ruska's development of the electron microscope in the early 30s. Over his long and illustrious career, he would hold about 600 patents in electron microscopy, medical technology, nuclear technology, plasma physics, and radio and television technology. After the war, Von Arden would shun the West, going to the Soviet Union, along with 300 other German scientists, including 1935 Nobel Prize recipient and fellow blueblood Gustav Hertz, the nephew of Heinrich Hertz. Agnesia Asenjewa had gone to the Soviet Union immediately after her and Heil published. She would never return to the West, spending the rest of her life working in secret at the Leningrad Physical Chemical Institute, where she had parted with Heil in 1935, he had accompanied her there, and they had worked together briefly on, until he went back to, to England, where he stayed until war broke out and re-entered Germany to Switzerland. In 1953, von Arden was awarded the Stalin Prize First Class for contributions to the Soviet's atomic bomb project, among other things. Later, he would go to East Germany, where he would live until 1997, basking in Russian gratitude and rubles for making them the other superpower. The truth is, von Neumann was fanatically committed to National Socialism and had been all his adult life. He was a Nazi. It was such an open secret that Stanley Kubrick, the CIA's powers bard, poked fun at it in Dr. Strangelove. He had been educated and imported from Germany by the Rockefeller Foundation four years before the National Socialists took power there. The Rockefeller Foundation was joined like Siamese twins to IG Farben, Brown Brothers Harriman, and all the rest of the parasites that latched on to Hitler as he ascended the throne of the German Empire. The same parasites that would force him to get rid of Gottfried Feder and much of National Socialism's dream. Like von Arden had ensured for himself by going to the Soviet Union. No one had any such leverage over von Neumann. He was a purist. Money meant nothing to him, except to have a big house to throw parties with his friends. The same could probably be said about another Jewish Nazi, Dennis Gabor, who won the Nobel Prize in 1971 for inventing the mathematics that made the holograph possible. Just like von Neumann, Gabor was a Jew from an aristocratic Hungarian family. His cultural background, his field of expertise, and even his lifelong interests indicate more than a passing acquaintance with von Neumann. They indicate just the type of top-secret collaboration that the swarm of security people that hovered over everything von Neumann touched was there to cover up. Gabor had a lifelong interest in self-replicating machines. His landmark 1959 uh, lecture on Electric Inventions and Their Impact on Civilization was the inspiration for the additional chapter in the 1961 edition of Norbert Wiener's Cybernetics, now considered the genesis of transhumanism. Wiener had already written the rest of the book and its accompanying canon, The Human Use of Human Beings. A decade earlier, right after von Neumann in 49, using only a pencil and graph paper designed a self-reproducing computer, Von Neumann's rigorous mathematical analysis of the structure of self-replication anticipated, with uncanny accuracy, the structure of DNA, discovered a couple of years later. In 1950, the Anglo-American Empire would inaugurate the next quarter century of its extensive experimentation with gene-splicing bacteria on its own citizens. When the United States Navy covertly launched Operation Sea Spray off the coast of San Francisco, under the cloak of national security, the Navy deliberately infected not only all of San Francisco, but Albany, Berkeley, Daly City, Coma, Oakland, San Leandro, and Sausalito, some 800,000 residents. Many of them were the most important people in the West burgeoning defense industry. Each inhaled millions of the insidious endonuclease-producing bacteria that had been mutated through neutron radiation during the war by fanatical Nazi genius Dr. Kurt Blum, who was, then, who was by then working with the Anglo-American Empire. In his 1963 book, Inventing the Future, Gabor listed the three major threats as he saw them to modern society, war, overpopulation, and the age of leisure. It was from what that book, that futurists would coin the phrase, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. In 1972, toward the end of his life, he published The Mature Society, A View of the Future, and joined the Club of Rome, supervising a working group studying energy sources and technical change. Although in his 70s and spending most of his time in Rome, Gabor became a staff scientist at CBS Laboratories in Stanford, Connecticut, where collaborating with his lifelong friend, CBS Labs president, Dr. Peter C. Goldmark, they put to practical application the German electromagnetic science, Paolo Sorge, had intended to use to propagate national socialism throughout all the occupied territories. It was in the 70s, and television became the tool of choice to build the West's ever expanding Zombie empire. Gabor was three years older than von Neumann and had fought valiantly at the side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire during World War I. After the war, he completed his studies at Charlottenburg Technical University in Berlin, now known as the Technical University of Berlin. He wrote his thesis in 1927 on the recording of transients in electric circuits with a cathode-ray oscillograph. He had been analyzing the properties of high-voltage electric transmission lines where no doubt he would have become intimately acquainted with the work of Schumann. Gabor's later work in Berlin with electron microscopes, plasma lamps, and TV tubes would have put him in von Arden's cave prior to 1933 when he went to England. And at best duped, and at worst lying to its teeth academia, claims Gabor was fleeing the Nazis, How stay in England, Two years later, until the outbreak of the war, following his invention of a velocity-modulated tube in 35, cannot be as easily explained. Howe was yet another blue-blooded Nordic. Like everything else that's unexplainable in academia's Nazi na- narrative, it's ignored. Von Neumann would have scoffed at any such notion. In fact, he delighted in torturing Einstein by blasting Prussian marching music on his gramophone when they had adjoining offices at Yale in the 30s. Relying heavily on the math of von Neumann, the great German mathematician David Hilbert, who was von Neumann's teacher and the architect of Hilbert's space, Gabor began publishing papers on producing images from frequency signals as soon as the war ended. By 1951, he had set forth the math that would move Fourier analysis into Fourier windows and wavelet transformations, using Gabor's atoms and wavelets, a wave-like oscillation with an amplitude that begins at zero and inc- increases and then decreases back to zero. Wavelets replaced the, the make-believe atoms of institutionalized academia with the very real science necessary to change the channel of reality in stealth technology. There can be little doubt that Dr. Heinz Schlick and the Office of Naval Research in the Sands Point were working very closely with the Atomic Energy Commission. The AEC is being covertly run by von Neumann practically since its inception, right after the war. In 1955, he became a commissioner and ran it openly until he died prematurely at 1957. In July of '45, the captured Dr. Schlick would give a lecture to the Navy Department. He was accompanied by a mysterious Mr. Alvarez, who acted as his handler, screening the questions. He was working feverishly on the problems presented by von Neumann's implosion method of detonating plutonium. Dr. Alvarez would be credited with the last-minute invention of the infrared fuses brought over by Dr. Schlick and to go and go on to his long and illustrious career as one of America's most lauded scientists. In 1968, the same year he was awarded the Nobel Prize, Alvarez led a team of 14 multinational scientists probed the middle pyramid in Giza using cosmic ray detection devices paid for by the AEC and developed by Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. The AEC not only had the devices specially built, but financed most of the expedition. Only one of the scientists was an archaeologist. Alvarez always maintained he took over a million readings and found nothing, but in an interview with the London Times, Dr. Emil L. Gonid of the a. Shams University let out that the pyramids was, were per, permeated with a mysterious energy that defied all known laws of physics. Alvarez, notable for his tampering with the Zapruder film and his meteor killed the dinosaurs theory, accused the Times of making the whole thing up. It was only the AEC that had truly witnessed the Hypogeum Citadel Franz Xavier Dorsch had built for Hitler beneath Ordorf. Dorsch was Tott's successor after Albert Speer proved unqualified for the job of building the UMBs. Dorsch, just like Tott had, or Sorge, had been, been the party member since the very beginning. In spite of his use of slave labor, he would walk away clean when the war ended and found German construction giant Dorsch Group. In the aftermath of the war, AEC had gone down and examined the subterranean city that was later turned into a metaphor in Chronicles of Ackerflor. After inspection, the AEC removed technical equipment that has remained undisclosed until this day and blew up the entrances, classifying all documents relating to the underground at Ordorf for 100 years. In the spring of forty-seven, the War Department gave AEC Camp Upton in Brookhaven, Long Island, And it was there they would put to use what they learned in Germany. From Sands Point, the Brookhaven Lab is a 45-minute drive east on the Long Island Expressway. It's centrally located, being about the same drive west on Sunrise Highway from Montauk Point.